as the kids that make their way. Uh, I'm sure they mentioned in announcements um, just what a blessing the week's been and uh, what a great uh, privilege it was just to see how many people the Lord has brought to this church who love the gospel but also love children and uh, what a joy it was to be uh, there with the VBS this week and a lot more fun than I know how to have. So I'm glad there are people who are more gifted than I involved in that. In fact, one of my stories, a little bit of how really I think the Lord worked in my heart towards going into ministry, giving me that desire, uh, was originally, I would say, growing up, I had a father who was in a parachurch ministry with Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I was involved in the church. I was a be- became a believer at a young age. But all I knew when I got towards the end of high school was I had this desire to serve the Lord and do ministry, but I didn't want to be anything like the youth pastors I had had. I wasn't a good youth, like I wasn't good in youth group when I was 16 and 17, and I thought, how could I ever lead this? Uh, part of that was a misunderstanding because I was under the impression that youth group was pizza and Halo, circa 2004, um, and I come to realize, oh no, like actually you want to preach the word even to those 14, 15, 16 year olds and not just play video games. But that's what was going on uh, where I was. And so it was a misunderstanding in part, but it's true. I'm, I'm not as much fun. And so I'm glad there are many other gifts in the church and uh, those who just have that gift of loving those children and enjoying that. Um, and really just honestly, straight up having the energy for it. So praise the Lord for them. You can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, We're going to look at 10 verses, so we're not going to take the whole and bite it off. But we do get an exciting beginning of the praises that are launched in heaven, hallelujah, before then next week we see the return of Christ on the white horse. So look with me, Revelation 19, we'll look at the first 10 verses together. says, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great crowd in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who, has, who was corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged the blood of his slave shed by her hand. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his slaves, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great crowd and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. And be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to him, or said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the witness of Jesus. Worship God, for the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Father, we do come now asking that you would give us eyes to see, 
Uh, just soften our hearts. May your spirit illuminate them to a, a right understanding here that, as I think it's rather clear, that what is intended by this passage is worship and that you would spark just joy in our hearts at the thought of these things coming true. It is true that you are the Almighty. It is true that you reign. It is true that you are deserving praise and every bit fitting of the word, the Hebrew word, as we see here, hallelujah. And yet we know you are patiently redeeming people to be the bride that we'll see here of your church. And there is preparation ongoing even now. And as we patiently wait to see all of this disclosed, may we have a hope and a joy of certainty that it will come to pass as we look towards this moment in the future where we see you face to face here and enjoy not only what we are promised in your word to be glorified as you are glorified, but this celebration of your redemptive work throughout the history of your church. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Many of you are familiar with Handel's Messiah. Many of you have probably attended some kind of orchestra event with it. And from that orchestra event, you probably most well know Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. So actually, this is a little embarrassing on my part, I have actually never attended a full orchestra concert of Handel's Messiah. I do know, I know it's upsetting, I do know the Hallelujah Chorus, and if we sang it, I could do it word for word, which tells you how well it is known. But it actually is a 260-page work by Handel. It's kind of shocking. And there's three acts. And in musical terms, uh, it is known as an oratio, which is to say it is like a play with acts, like say Shakespeare, but there's no costumes, there's no scenes. It's just musical. And it takes you right through the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And the end of that second act... The death of Christ on the cross is where it is concluded with the hallelujah chorus that is so well known. Tradition says that George II, when he heard that chorus, he stood. And hence why today you still find most people in most places, whether uh, a secular event or not, when they hear that, they stand to their feet. But it's based on this text in Revelation 19 Hallelujah, four times. But you say, verse 6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And then, which we'll see next week, verse 16, and he has on his garment, on his side, name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And another little phrase from earlier in Revelation 11, that he will reign forever and ever. And so to this day, 280 years later, we're still singing that musical piece, or at least listening to it being sung, praising not only what Christ will do, but what he has done. That he came as a man, that he lived as a man, and that he died as a substitutionary death on the cross for us and was raised again by God the Father. But as we come here, it's that same kind of movement from something that, what is going on as you come to Revelation 
not so sure what is being revealed to something that is tragic. The, think of the little scroll that is eaten, the, the bitter honey taste of judgment and judgment. The death of Christ is something bitter, but out of that comes something that is sweet, that is joyful. And I kind of feel the same way as we've marched through Revelation, that you had to work your way through judgment and pain and tragedy in a world that continues to reject, 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 even though there's opportunity after opportunity, even the Lord bringing those evangelists who preach the gospel and his tribulation saints who preach the word, they still reject. And so as we march through 6 through 16, the general idea of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls was that God was judging the earth and he was going to take back what was rightfully his. Last couple of weeks, we've been in that kind of zooming into Babylon, the very specifics of Babylon, that they are bankrupt. Both in 17, they're bankrupt religiously. It's false religion. It looks like they, he's kind of tempted them to say, this is what will defeat the Lord, but really it's untrue and bankrupt. And then even more so, chapter 18 last week, that that bankruptcy is not just spiritual, but it is, you're going to lose everything. They lose all the, the merchants and the captains, and it's kind of described in, in the language there that all the wealth is simply gone and they are completely bankrupt. And then it ends here in verse 24 of chapter 18, right before we get into 19, this reality of, you want to know why? It's this idea of rebellion, that they have rebelled against the Lord. They have rebelled against Him. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. That is to say, the judgment that is met out, that is meted out is just in every way. And so the heavens will cry out, hallelujah, for justice has come. And so now we come into chapter 19 and what's being set up in heaven here is this hallelujah because what is about to happen is the Lord is going to return in verse 11. And so first we're going to see the scene from heaven, uh, 1 through 10, as it's heaven and I think coming down in the marriage supper of the Lamb. We won't get into too much of perhaps timeline and details, but all of this is going to happen as the Lord sees exactly fit. So we're going to look together here at reasons why the Lord our God will receive praise forever and ever. The Lord our God will receive praise forever and ever. And we're going to see three reasons why that is true. And the first reason is simply in these first three verses, because rebellion has ended. Because rebellion has ended. We're going to see more than rebellion here. Although we can see that he's met out salvation and glory and power. But it is that what has begun at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, especially chapter 3 with the fall, that full circle is finally complete. It says this in verse 1, that after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great heaven and crowd in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he is judged the great harlot, which we know as the idea of Babylon, of course, not just the city itself, but what it represents, that all the world has fallen after them from the beginning of the representation in Genesis 11 of Babel, who is corrupting the earth with their sexual immorality. You're going to see the same play of this relational language of sexual immorality. And then, of course, when it talks about the church, it's going to use the language of marriage. So an inappropriate relationship and an inappropriate relationship is the idea of the pictures here. And he has avenged the blood of his slaves 
shed by her hand. That is what we've been waiting for. And you saw early in Revelation of how long, O Lord? The answer is here. This is how long. And they will sing the first hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belongs to the Lord. And then the second in verse 3, they sing and say, Hallelujah, her smoke rises uh, smoke rises up forever and ever. If you're wondering, is this another moment where that you have some peace or just simply a, a pause or maybe there's another judgment or another bowl that will be poured out? No, this is the final reality. Babylon is gone forever and her smoke will rise forever and ever. And so this loud voice is saying these words, hallelujah. This is the first time in the New Testament you will find this word, which is used throughout the Old Testament, simply meaning praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. Who's singing it? In verse 1, it seems, and there's kind of these distinctive groups, and I don't know if we could be dogmatic on it, but it is to say it's first described as a loud voice of a great crowd in heaven. Some people look at it and see it as the martyred saints, which would make a lot of sense. It's definitely probably at least them. Maybe it's more than them because they are praising God because finally they have been avenged in the right and appropriate way. This happens just before the second coming. At least we understand a chronology of it. This is happening maybe very quickly together. And they are singing together that the end of Babylon has come. The end of rebellion has happened. It's a story so where you could say the story of the Bible has always been headed. You look at a movie and a book and there's different kind of movements and typically you have some kind of setting at the beginning and there's some level of conflict which makes every story interesting. And there's something that climaxes before you have somewhat of a resetting, which you have in really of all like stories you could say are based on the true and great story which is we're going to see eventually a resetting of a new heavens and a new earth. But this is where the story, the arc of that story was always headed. From the very beginning, not only just the fall, but creation itself was moving towards this plan of God of what he was going to do and receive glory from it for what he has done. And so that's what, exactly what it says. He's praised, hallelujah, for salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Not that there was any question who was going to win in the end, but it is a reminder that God is who he says he is. And we've seen it. And they have seen it in heaven, what he has done. And so they praise him for it, for his power and his promised coming and glory. If you flip over to Romans chapter 1. Just a reminder here of these righteous judgments where it moves, this judgment. Some may look and say, but is it truly righteous? Couldn't God have been clearer? And yet Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, From the beginning of the story, it says, verse 20 of Romans 1, For the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. There wasn't a time when you couldn't wake up and you couldn't look at the sky, you couldn't look at the sun, you couldn't look at the rotation of this planet and not recognize that someone put this thing together. And so they will be without excuse. 
For even though it says, verse 21, they knew God, they did not glorify him. Again, that same term, they did not reflect him. They did not respond to him. They did not respond to what they knew was right and true. This isn't talking kind of divine revelation of scripture, just the natural revelation of the world. They knew God, it says. They knew there was a creator, but they did not glorify him as God. That is, they didn't give him his rightful place. They did not listen. They did not obey. They didn't even, on say, the law written on their own hearts when they understand that it is wrong, when they, they don't like being mistreated, yet they, in turn, mistreated others. So they knew, by their own experience, they didn't like this or this wasn't good, but yet they treated others in such a way. They didn't glorify him as God or give thanks, and they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. The idea of verse 22, they professed to be wise. That is, you could say, the definition of Tower of Babel, of Babylon. But they became foolish. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the idea of the harlot of Babel, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And he goes on, but it is to say, they exchanged the truth for a lie. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Well, the creator was only going to allow that for so long, but for a purpose. We've seen that, that he is gathering his church. And this is the hallelujah in heaven that the time has come that the church has not only been gathered in heaven, but even all of his saints to the tribulation are here as I will look and see at the marriage of the supper of the lamb. The rebellion has ended. Think of even, I know there's not much growing around us with no rain. Can't have much green without rain. But somehow weeds persist. And you think back to Genesis chapter 3 and you think of the curse of the ground that Adam's going to have to work by the sweat of his brow to cultivate the ground. And, you know, we have our own ways in which we suffer. Things are harder to get out of the ground, even with technology and those things. Or at least harder, or you're going to have to pay money for technology to make it a little bit easier. But it's the same idea, I think, of here. of You're trying to contain something that continues to grow wild. If it costs me, and I'm, you could probably give me a really high number, and you could say, do this once to your lawn, and never again will you pull a weed. I probably would pay it. But somehow we have to do it every year, and then things become resistant, and then new things get come in, brought into your yard, and you have to try different things or go out and pull every single weed every single year. And it's just a reminder that this isn't conducive to what we would like. And the time will come when you won't have to do such things. And again, that's a silly thing with saying pulling weeds, but the idea is we over and over again are reminded that the world isn't right. Keeps coming back, keeps coming back. I've got the ground squirrels like crazy in my yard. And I called the guy. It was crazy. It was like $50 a ground squirrel. which I'm like, you're going to catch like 50 of them. This isn't good. But I really wanted to know, if you come, can you eradicate this issue for me? Can you trap them all and be done? And he basically was a very nice guy and very honest. And he said, no. I might catch most of them, but I'll have to be back next year and the next year and the next year, which is great for him. It's good, good job security. But over and over and over again, he's saying, no, we, we can't eradicate this. Again, it's a silly analogy for 
Revelation 19, but it's, there is a time where you kind of see these reprieves in the world and even say within our own family or within his church, you see this joy and this happiness and you almost have a moment of, you think, well, this must be like heaven. But there will be a reminder that it is not. And then you get to Revelation 19, 20 and forward and that will never happen again. You'll never have the reminder. It's going to be where we get to here in a a few weeks where he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more tears. It'll be dealt with once and for all and gone. You want to keep coming back over and over again and tending these things. God has praised that he has dealt the final blow to rebellion. And yes, rebellion of people is what is emphasized here, but you even kind of see that in creation. And that's why you're going to see a new creation New heavens and a new earth. He's praised for his power. Nothing will be able to stand before him. He's praised for his salvation. Not only that, he has saved the blood of, as it says in verse 2, his slaves, those who are his, those tribulation saints. He saved them and then even avenged the blood that was shed by the hand of Babel. And so hallelujah for what has done. You can trust him because this is a sure thing. Why? Because he has the power and the glory to get it done, to finish it, to see it through. It will happen. And so you can say, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever. That is, it will never return. It's not repeat, but once done for all. And we'll see that he is going to judge the great harlot, verse 2 who's corrupting the earth. And again, this is the relationship language of sexual immorality, of inappropriate, again, just that language, inappropriate relationship versus the right and true relationship with Christ described and depicted in human marriage in verses 7, 8, and 9. But he's going to deal with the harlot once and for all because rebellion has ended. They sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. But also... This reality, because the rebellion has ended and a new reign is beginning. Has he always been sovereign? Yes. Has God always been in control? Yes. But there is a way in which he has allowed things. Sin, not completely unchecked in this world, but yet sin is still here. Yet we still have to deal with issues in the flesh. And there will be a uniqueness to this reality of the hallelujah in heaven that He deals and he will reign uniquely moving forward as Christ returns. And you will see it in this millennial reign of Christ where in essence the curse is going to be reversed. So number one, he's worthy of praise forever and ever because he destroys all rebellion. And secondly, because he reigns forever. We see in verse 4 that the 24 elders and the four living creatures from chapter 4 and 5 are back. We see them in heaven multiple times throughout the book. They are there and they were always, always worshiping the Lord around the throne. And the 24 elders, the four living creatures, they fell down and they worship God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. That is, let it be. They're in agreement to the great crowd and Again, perhaps it's a distinction from the great crowd. A great crowd is saying the first hallelujah and then the 24 elders, which we looked at as the church, sees that and they go, we agree, amen, to what they are singing. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
That is to say, everyone there is praising God for what he has done because he reigns. And then in verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his slaves. That idea, that you, New Testament terminology of you, the believer, those who follow him, those who he says, who fear him, the small and the great, which is to say everything from the youngest to the oldest to the strongest to the weakest, every single person give praise to our God, which is that idea. Hallelujah, praise to God, everyone, those who fear him, small and great, which is interesting as well. There won't become a time even, it would seem in eternity, where this idea of a healthy sense of who God is, is ever removed. This isn't simply just fear in its most negative sense of being afraid, but it is to say you rightly understand who God is and who you are, creator, creature distinction. And it does cause a level of good and right fear, reverence, awe towards him. And they're saying, give praise to God, everyone who understands who God is. Then he heard something like the voice of a great crowd and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, the same phrase we've seen from heaven multiple times in Revelation, peals of thunder, lightning, saying the same word, praise God, hallelujah, for our Lord God, the almighty reigns. So just like in any kind of chorus or orchestra where you have multiple parts, it seems there are multiple parts of heaven are all saying in different ways in harmony, succinctly saying, praise God because he reigns. The loud voice in verse 1, the loud voice, the great crowd, the sound of many waters and like the mighty peals of thunder. I imagine, if you imagine the largest thunderstorm you've ever heard, it would seem this probably would do that and much, much more. But it is the sounds that this is unique. This is a moment where the Lord is being prepared, where he will come out of heaven and he will return because he reigns. His kingdom is one that is forever and ever. Hence Handel writing uh, from chapter 11, his kingdom will reign forever and ever. This is where theology really matters, that we trust God for who he is, that we can say he is almighty. Yes, that means he has uh, unlimited power, which means you can trust him un- without limits, that there's hate, hope, faith, trust. That even though we're experiencing, you could say, the arc of the story, we're not quite to the resetting. We're not quite to this point in in human history. We know where it's headed. We have absolute confidence of where it is going and the promise of not only a future kingdom, but more importantly, you could even say, because that kingdom represents a king in Christ returning and taking back what is rightfully his. And so he is worthy of praise forever and ever because he has defeated all because rebellion has ended and because he reigns. And then thirdly, we see this section here describing this language of the marriage. And so thirdly, he is worthy of praise forever and ever because the marriage of the Supper of the Lamb has happened. Because Jesus has been united with his bride. Look at verse 7. The contrast is an inappropriate relationship. You saw it throughout the Old Testament, the language and here it is well. Marriage is used. We'll see. We'll look there in a moment in Ephesians 5 of the church. And I think this is the description of the church here and uniquely because we do have some distinct characters and 
we'll, we'll talk a moment about that. But it's to say they're rejoicing again. Hallelujah, verse 7. The same idea, they're still rejoicing in heaven. Why? Because let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And who's given her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And note in verse 9, then he said to me, so John hears, blessed, right, John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And so you have some distinctions even made in this analogy. And we don't want to probably take analogies too far, but I do think there's biblical basis to see and understand this as the church and to see a distinction between guests. And it's not to say there are second class citizens of heaven. It's simply to say there are distinctions. And those are okay. The 144,000 had a song that only they could sing. I don't think it means that they're more special or greater in some capacity. It's just simply they were distinctive of all of human history. The 144 were sealed specifically. And so they have a unique song they sing. And the church has its own uniqueness as well. And I think you see that described in here. But all of heaven is praising because they have seen that what was promised to Christ is coming to fruition in what he died in. That is the church that he has given his life for. And others are there as well that are praising those who receive the same salvation from Christ, his death and his resurrection. This idea of marriage is a little bit different than, than ours, but there are some similarities. That's a pretty easy uh, kind of softball for me this morning because this is today my 13th anniversary. So you can say congrats. Ashley made it. Uh, but 13 years ago, we got married. And I, I thought of this passage a lot and thinking of marriage and thinking of first century marriages, which were different. But there are a couple, well, those of you who've been over, and if you've ever asked us our story, there, there's lots of funny parts to our story. And the Lord is kind that she married somebody who had no concept of what it took to plan a wedding. Because in my mind, my wife worked for a ministry and she did a lot of event planning. And, you know, I suppose it's true of a lot of guys. How hard is it to plan an event? How hard is it to plan a wedding? And so we got engaged. And I remember the next morning— and you should ask the engagement story because that's another great story. But we'll skip it. The next morning, though, and this is the point of where we're at in this passage this morning. I remember sitting at Aroma Cafe in North Hollywood and saying, well, we should probably get married. Ashley says it was the next month. Oh, we got engaged in February, and she thought I said March. I don't know if I really said March. I'm kind of defensive. Like, I don't think I'm that crazy. I know I said May. And she kind of said, that's probably too fast. I was like, but like I graduate in May. My brother's in the military. He could probably attend. This would make a ton of sense. And she didn't hyperventilate at that moment, but you could tell she's like, that's not going to work. Um, and so we ended up getting married in June. And that was partially because my sister was getting married in August, which I was more than happy to get married faster. That's, that's where I was at with it. But it took a lot more work and a lot more preparation. And her point was, although we're engaged— you can't necessarily the next day, if you're going to have any kind of traditional ceremony, you can't get married the next day. I know you can go to the courthouse, you can get married. But the point is, if you want everyone to be there, there is a certain level of preparation that has to take place. It can get done in four months, just FYI, just in case you're wondering. But it's going to be a difficult thing. 
As you look at the, the first century, it's that same idea. It's a little different in that you would have marriage contracts, right? And we understand that. Even in the Middle East today, there's arranged marriages and there would be some level of which a, two parents get together and say that their son and the other's daughter is going to get married one day. And they actually would be such binding in most areas in that country that you'd actually need a divorce to get out of those contracts, even though they were young and they weren't yet married. The idea was it's going to happen, which of course for us biblically is a good picture because the picture of the church in marriage, that it's, it's not a question of when the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to happen because it's already going to, it's going to happen. But at some point when they got to an old enough age and the, the next stage was that the, the groom and his friends would go and get the bride and take her back to his home. And then when arriving to the home, they would have the marriage ceremony culminating in this marriage supper and the marriage itself. And you kind of see this same kind of picture throughout the New Testament. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. We learn there that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. I don't even think you kind of see this, the way it's laid out in Revelation and understanding the rapture of the church, that the church has been, the groom has come back and got his bride, the church. And this is distinctive in this way for the church. He's got her and brought her to his home. And then the next event is going to be the supper and this celebration that is happening. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, this idea of marriage being a representation of Christ and his church is, is nowhere clearer than here in this passage. If you look at Ephesians 5, starting in 22... You're going to look at kind of the, the household and, and how the gospel impacts not just husbands and wives, but children and, and parents. But it begins looking here at wives. Be subject to your own husbands, ask the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. And again, he uses theology here to say this is, there's, there's correspondence here that the husband is the head of the wife, but not because him of himself is, is unique in that way, but it's representative of as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so husbands ought to also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. This is good logic here. You take care of yourself, and if she is part of you, take care of her. Nourish, cherish it the way you nourish and cherish your own flesh. Just as what Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And he goes on to say, look, this isn't as if, you know, this isn't a chicken and the egg issue. This was the intention from the beginning. In fact, verse 31, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That is something unknown is now clear. This whole analogy of, of, In the Old Testament of, of, of harlotry or immorality or, or fornication, all things, it's that idea of inappropriate relationship. 
And marriage always stood in contrast to say there is an appropriate relationship that God designed within marriage between a man and a woman. And it reflects Christ and his church. And Paul makes it extremely clear here that we understand that. And so then you pick up the same kind of language throughout the New Testament. There's other places, but then you look at Revelation 19. You understand, okay, we've seen the marriage language with the church over and over and over again. And this is a good thing. You think about the gospel and, and Christianity and the church. And I love everyone here, but I love my wife uniquely. Christ loves his church. And there's this uniqueness to it that I think you go, wow, it's unbelievable that Christ would love his church in such a way that this is a representation of what, at least in our context, humanly speaking, is the greatest love you could have for another, which of course even charges the husbands in the same way. Look at Christ's love, verse 25. He loved the church, how? By serving, by giving himself up for her. And understand that just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, so that he might sanctify her. And this is going to come into play back in Revelation 19 of what, what, what is this idea of the church being sanctified, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. This is the purpose. And this is, I think you get all the way to Revelation 19. This is where you see, where does this find its culmination? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So flip back to Revelation 19. And they're praising God because what Christ is being presented is that very thing, his blameless bride that has been prepared. And again, preparation took time. You go, why? And we've talked about this throughout Revelation. Why so long? And why are the martyrs asking how long? Well, there is purpose and, and God is not necessarily, he's not late by any means. He's simply waiting till all the guests and the bride is culminated in the church age, but even all the guests are prepared in verse 9. But we're to rejoice as heaven rejoices and be glad and give the glory to him. Why? Because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. What is the idea of ready? The idea of ready, verse 8, is that it was given to her. She got ready, just like in a typical wedding. Again, this is just the imagery of their day, and it's somewhat similar because in a similar way, we all got ready for those who are married for the wedding day, probably in this case, we understand the bride a little bit more than the groom. But it's given to her, the bride, that is the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so we understand salvation. Salvation is not because of your righteous acts. In fact, the whole point of Isaiah is that your righteous acts are like filthy rags. You're not going to be able to please the Lord on your own. But if you have been saved by God's grace that you have a righteousness that comes from God. We understand that comes through Christ. Yet here in verse 8, it talks of the righteous acts of the saints. Well, again, it seems to be that the things that we do, the way that we live our, live our lives is part of that preparation. Your sanctification is part of the preparation for that day. Yours and then the corporate as the church, as they're preparing, as they're giving the Lord... Romans 12, their lives as a living sacrifice to him. 
clothing themselves and fine linen, bright and clean. Throughout Revelation, you've seen that kind of same idea of, of, of salvation, the fine linen, the righteous acts of the saints. We participate in this in preparing. That is, what are you doing right now? What are you doing this week? Hopefully having a right understanding of giving God glory that he deserves by the way you live, living according to his word. We look at Ephesians 5. We are being washed in the, the water that is of his word being prepared for this day. And then he goes on in verse 9. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And so again, I understand this as that there are guests that are there as well and that the church is distinctive at this moment that, that has been raptured, but that the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints are guests that are there. And again, there's no second class citizen in heaven. It's just to say there is distinction and that's okay. and Everyone plays a distinct role, but it seems that distinct role for the church is to be the bride of Christ uniquely in some way, which of course everyone's being invited in ultimately and Everyone's saved the same way. So don't make too much of it, but also I don't think we want to wash away all distinction. But at that reality, it would seem, John realizes that he would be there. And a natural response would be here after seeing everything and maybe even realizing this, the beauty of this ceremony of, of Christ to his church, that he falls at his feet to worship him. Well, the problem is this is not what angels are for. And of course, I'm almost thinking he's think this is embarrassing. Get up. But the angel says to him, don't do that. Because the angel simply says, I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the witness of Jesus. Worship God for the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's only one who should be worshipped, and it's no angel. It's, it's the worthy lamb. And he says, remember. And I love this phrase. He says, I'm a fellow slave with you. So the angels, there, there, there's, there's uh, hey, we're all serving the same king. And your brothers who have the witness of Jesus, that is, understanding the gospel, who God is, who we are, what Christ has done for us on the cross for our sin, He's saying there's only one person to look to to worship in that, and that's to worship God for what he has done. And then he reminds them, look, think, you understand this. For the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which is a way of saying that all of redemptive history is pointing, prophecy is pointing to the coming of Christ, whether it be in his first advent or his second. The nature of prophecy is Jesus. That's the reality. And if you start reading prophetic things throughout the Old Testament, you're going to start going, okay, this is all pointing into and hoping in a Messiah and a coming King who's going to make all things right. And even as you come to the New Testament and its most prophetic book, the book we are studying, it's all about his return. That is to say, the spirit of Jesus, the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is what it's all about. This reality that he is the king who then will return. We're going to see in glorious might and power and deal out final recompense. Take the beast and the false prophet and throw them down. And then we'll reign for this thousand years. And some of the questions of how that will happen will be answered over the coming weeks. But as you look at this passage, it is the hallelujah chorus of heaven 
praising God for what he is, who he is and what he has done. This reminder that the church here is, is unique in its own way in which the bride of Christ, this beauty of marriage symbolizing Christ's love for us as a, as a husband should love his wife. Again, the, the highest you could say, most appropriate relationship that human beings can experience. And it's saying that's the closest thing we have to how Christ loves his church, how Christ loves those who are his, which is a beautiful picture. And it's all a call, I think, here to remember that you and I, our main purpose is, as the old catechism says, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Understand the role that you play. I think particularly seven and eight have a massive impact that what you do does actually matter. There is dignity in your decisions. It's not as if, well, we're just in Nebraska and it doesn't really matter for us. No, you're actually part of something going on. And that's kind of revelation that is cosmic. That you get to participate in it. That as you grow and you are sanctified, those things are not just individual, but they're part of a overall preparation for the church as the bride of Christ. So that one day, as all of heaven does in these first 10 verses, whether it's the the great crowd in heaven in verse 1, the 24 elders and the four living creatures in verse 3, the voice from the throne in verse 5, or the voice of a great crowd like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, whether it's any of those that we understand that we would echo and say amen and in agreement and sing those words, hallelujah. And we know them well to recognize that it is Christ who will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that it is, even as we've studied and come through all of the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls being poured out, the bowls of sort up of, of your wrath to judge wickedness and punish sin, that we can find ourselves here looking into the future to see the moment will come where Babel has fallen and there will be rejoicing and hallelujahs shouted from heaven that praise the Lord for what you have done, that you have judged righteously. Rebellion has ended. You will reign forever. And that you will, in turn, that we will, in turn, reign with you, as the scriptures say. Lord, help us as we look towards these truths be a motivation for us, the privilege that we have in Christ to walk, as Paul says, worthy of our calling. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.